Part One, Chapter Twenty Eight of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank by Alexander Hunter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Wreckage After the Storm. It was a pitch dark night with no light but that of the stars, and a few of us who were trying to find the seventeenth became lost on the field. Every now and then we fell or stumbled over a dead body, or worse still, some poor wounded fellow would moan so that it made the blood in our veins run cold and filled us with dismay. My own wound proved to be a slight one after my friend John Addison had attended to it. We attempted to choose a path by striking one match after another, but the supply was soon exhausted, and then we came to a standstill. Looking around, we could discern nothing but torches waving at far intervals about the field, flickering in the faint breeze that had sprung up with the coming of night, and which was borne to us tainted with the smell of blood. Starting onward, my companion stumbled, and a horrified exclamation burst from his lips. His hand had rested, he said, on only the half of a head, whose top had been carried away by a shell. So we wandered aimlessly about, tripping every few paces, until at last, to our great relief, we reached an elevation and saw a campfire burning not far away. Steering a straight course for its light, we arrived upon the spot, and with a delight no words could express, found the seventeenth, or rather what was left of it, for only sixteen men had kept to the colors throughout the day, as we afterwards learned, the balance having been scattered in every direction and swallowed up in other organizations. The remnant had lighted a fire with empty ammunition and cracker-boxes that were gathered on the field, and were making themselves as comfortable as circumstances would permit. No one knew the extent of the losses in the regiment. Indeed, it had been as much as one could do to keep the run of his own individual self. For the first time in a week we had a full and a good meal—coffee, sugar, beef, bacon, and crackers— Ambulances and men of the impoverished sanitary squads, looking after the wounded, passed and repassed our fire. Every minute some lost soldier would come up, attracted by the light, until there were in our vicinity several hundred belonging to a score or so of different commands. Each man had a captured haversack and blanket, for those we discarded that morning and left under guard we never expected to see again. That we had won a great victory every soldier knew and the probabilities of a forward movement were freely discussed, all arguing that the blunders of the first Manassas would not be repeated now that Lee had supreme control of matters. Every man, too, with whom we talked, spoke of the day's battle as the hardest and most stubbornly contested one that had ever taken place in Virginia. No one but what had shot away his whole supply of cartridges, and so far as we could learn, Every soldier in Longstreet's corps had fired every cartridge in his box as well as those in his haversack, making, as I said before, sixty rounds per man. The faces of all were smutty with burnt powder. Two-thirds had their clothes torn with bullets, and many were slightly wounded who made no trouble or fuss about it. The sky, Sunday morning, was one mass of gray, granite-like clouds, and it seemed as if nature had clad herself in sad-colored robes, to mourn the slaughter of her sons, to end in the usual weeping that followed every battle. After a hurried breakfast, the soldiers separated, looking for their several commands. For some hours the army was halted in the field, to get the men together, 
reform the organizations, and fill their scattered ranks. Lieutenant Colonel Herbert, now in command of the 17th, with the colors and a small party of the original regiment, were not far away, and formed a nucleus around which the absentees were rapidly collecting. Every soldier of the 17th expressed deep-felt sorrow over the disaster that happened to our colonel. He was loved and admired by the men, but more than all trusted implicitly. We learned later that his leg was shattered above the knee, and the limb amputated below the hip, thus ending forever his military career in the field. The Confederacy lost one of its most brilliant officers when he fell. Colonel Mary was of a highly nervous temperament, but in action he was the coolest man I ever saw. Nature molded and fashioned him for a soldier, and I have always thought that had this highly cultured, brainy soldier gone through the war unwounded, he would have surrendered his army corps and made a name second only to Lee and Jackson. The battlefield presented a horribly sickening sight. The wounded had all been taken care of, but the dead were resting just as they fell. Here was one with both legs torn off by a solid shot, the ground for many feet around sprinkled with the blood that jetted out in a stream from the severed arteries. Another had fallen on his knees and clasped his hands over his head, which had been fractured by a piece of shell. He was a frightful object, with the tongue protruding and the teeth clenched tightly upon it. An infantryman shot in the neck had unstrapped his knapsack, unrolled his blanket, lain down and covered himself over, and then had quietly breathed his last. What a methodical, systematic person he must have been, the ruling passion so strong in death it spoke in so many words. I did my life's work well, and now the summons comes. I wrap the drapery of my couch around me and lie down in pleasant dreams. Could a knife in the hands of an Indian have scalped a poor fellow more scientifically than did that bursting shell? And see here a man who had his two arms broken as if they had been stems. There lay five or six of our men, torn and mangled almost beyond recognition, by one single shell that had burst so close to them that it did its fiendish work only too successfully. A group had gathered around one dead form and were gazing down upon it with fixed interest, and yet sadly enough. We joined them and found it to be a lad, scarcely more than fourteen years old, shot through the forehead. His uniform was new and most tastefully made, doubtless to suit his boyish fancy. The long hair seemed even then to be fresh from the toying touch and loving hands of mother or sister. He was no soldier. One could see that. Most probably he lived in the neighborhood and had joined the line in the charge. He rested upon the earth as fair as the marble hyacinth. "'How anxious they must be at home about him,' remarked someone near, as we stood looking down upon the slender figure. "'I can imagine how they watch and wait for him, and what they would say if they could see him now.' and the strong rugged speaker, who had borne the brunt of a battle unmoved, drew the back of a rough hand over his eyes and passed on. The ground which we traversed was where the heaviest fighting had taken place in the earlier part of the action. The carnage had been fearful, and blue and gray lay closely mingled. Death had found these victims in various attitudes, and stiffened them into stone, and his icy hands had frozen to marble his lips loved by households, one was in the act of raising his gun to fire, another was about to open his cartridge box, and died in the attempt. A third was retreating, and when struck was unloosening his knapsack, and a fourth had sat down to tie his shoe, 
when the fatal ball had killed him instantly. The missiles had struck everywhere. This man was shot in the mouth. On that face a bursting shell had left not a single feature. Worse still, here is a head as completely severed from the body as if the guillotine had done it. And there, the living, beating heart seemed to have been torn out, all quivering and bleeding. Already the blackness of corruption had disfigured many faces and rendered immediate burial imperatively necessary. Here and there and everywhere were pools of clotted blood, as if blood were the cheapest and freest flowing commodity on earth, showing where wounded and dying soldiers had lain. Scattered about the ground, because the nerveless hands had no further use of them, were rifles, knapsacks, accoutrements, empty ammunition boxes, blankets, coats, and even swords. How soon the vainglory of war vanishes before the carnage of the field! How much of its poetic unreality dissolves into the stern, hard prose of the hospital! How many of its undraped horrors are disclosed upon the after-battleground! Every dead body had been searched, every pocket was wrong side out, proving that the camp followers and robbers of the dead had completed their work. Every corpse, whether in blue or gray uniform, had been divested of its shoes and hat, and many even had their outer clothing removed. As several of our brigades passed, we heard the troops curse fiercely the miserable pillagers, who, like birds of prey, flocked to the battlefield after the action to accomplish their foul purposes. A true soldier rarely condescends to strip his fallen enemies. He will take a pair of shoes or a hat if he needs them badly, but it must be from necessity and not from desire of gain. The brigade had a formal roll-call by companies so as to report the losses to the adjutant-general. A rather remarkable personnel answered to their names, and presented as its chief feature the charm of variety. Many of the men were slightly wounded and had arms in slings or heads bound up. Adornments in the way of fine hats, officers' long-tailed coats, and cavalrymen's jackboots picked up on the field, were sported by their fortunate possessors with an air of supreme satisfaction and hardly concealed pride. This element was all the more noticeable in that each man's next neighbor in the ranks was either hatless, coatless, or shoeless, as the case might be. But all had blankets and full haversacks, confiscated on the battlefield with due honors of war. Our regimental losses were about seventy-five killed and wounded, those of the brigade between two and three hundred. Now that the list had been made out, the brigade took up its march. The farther we advanced, the more evident became the fact that the enemy's retreat the night before had been almost a panic. Knapsacks, guns, and all sorts of miscellaneous articles belonging to the equipment of a soldier were scattered in the greatest confusion along the pike. Every soldier loaded himself down at first, but later on, as the contents of the knapsacks were ransacked, only the letters and daguerreotypes were taken out and handed around, the balance pitched away for the comfort and use of needy soldiers behind. Many a fair northern girl could not have been otherwise than flattered at the praises her beauty elicited, albeit from rebels, as her picture passed from hand to hand along the ranks. Continuing on our way, we passed a beef which had been freshly slaughtered and skinned by our obliging enemy, who had left it as a slight token of their esteem, surmising how long it had been since we had so partaken. To be sure, they had been in too great a hurry to eat it themselves, but that made not the slightest difference in the world, as our own men, 
could stop just long enough to hack off a chunk before they hurried on. On our way we passed a small house on the roadside, from which the yellow flag was flying. It had been taken by the Yankees as a hospital, and their surgeons were even then busy in their work. Evidences of the nature of their labor appeared before us in a most ghastly, hideous form. On a table, running the length of one room, all the amputating had been done, and the floor was slippery with the vital blood that ran out and dripped from every crack and crevice in one dire percolation. As fast as the shattered limbs were severed from the trunk, they were thrown out of the window, and there they lay, in a heap, five or six feet in height, a sickening collection of legs, arms, and fingers of all sizes and lengths, rebel and Yankee commingled. Never before was seen a more shocking and tangible evidence of the cruelty of this struggle. Each amputated limb, the exponent of a human being, disabled and doomed, to suffer so long as life might last. All in and around the yard lay the wounded, almost an acre of them, both of the blue and gray, while the surgeons of the north and south, animated by a single noble purpose, moved among the crowd, with sleeves rolled up and arms covered with blood, doing all that human power could do to alleviate pain and to save life. Following the Sudley Road, the brigade crossed Bull Run at the ford and came to a halt. The rations for one day were issued, consisting of two crackers and a quarter of a pound of fat bacon, the last we were going to get for many a long day. Having halted, the order was read to the brigade congratulating them on the results of yesterday's battle. The old first had brought from the fields five stands of captured soldiers. The brigade, consisting of the 1st, 17th, 7th, and 11th Virginia regiments, 1,800 muskets strong, had captured a battery of four pieces, spiked by the enemy, who had been unable to carry it off, because nearly all the horses had been killed. Toward evening the rain, which had been pouring nearly all day, cleared up temporarily, and the brigade halted to pass the night. The soldiers smoked, read the captured letters, and talked and fought the battle over again until dark, when they turned in. It was so warm that but few fires were lighted. Preparations for sleep were made simply those nights. The rationale was merely spreading the blanket on the ground, lying on it, and rolling up in it tightly. The head was next reclined on a cartridge box, and a hat put over the face, then off into dreamland. To the student of military history, Pope's campaign will be considered the most unique in the annals of war. Possessed as he was of an overwhelming belief in himself, boundless imagination, and nervous aberration in action, he was the last man on earth to be entrusted with a supreme command. During the short two months, as commanding general of the Army of the Potomac, he issued more orders, gave more directions, and wrote more voluminous reports than did Grant in his four years of successful campaigning. It is difficult to conceive how he found time in that short period to write so much. His correspondence in the war records would make a respectable book. His orders to his subordinates were so profuse and contradictory that it is no wonder confusion prevailed, and in the great game of military chess he kept king, knight, bishop, and pawn on the jump, without method, and played, as it were, from impulse. In the natural course of events, his checkmate from such an adversary as Lee was certain to be quick and complete. Pope, of course, had his scapegoat. For many years, Fitz John Porter had to bear all the opprobrium of Pope's complete fiasco. 
The story of Pope's campaign can be told in a few words by extracts from his own reports. Beginning at his Orlando Furioso proclamation in taking command of the army, his dispatches, in the light of cold reason, show his character to a dot. He wrote to Halleck regarding the Battle of Cedar Mountain. On Thursday morning the enemy crossed the Rapidan at Barrett's Ford in a heavy force. Brigadier General Bayard, with his cavalry, fell slowly back, delaying the enemy's advance. General Banks was ordered to take position at Cedar Mountain with orders to hold the enemy in check until Siegel's corps arrived and had a good rest after their forced march. General Roberts reported to me that he had conferred freely with General Banks and urgently represented to him my purposes, but that General Banks, contrary to my wishes, had left the strong position which he had taken up and had advanced at least a mile to assault the enemy believing that they were not in considerable force. His advance led him over the open ground that was everywhere swept by the fire of the enemy. The action lasted about an hour and a half, and our forces suffered heavy loss and were gradually driven back. On August 23, 1862, he wrote to Major General Siegel, The Rappahannock River has, owing to the rain, risen six feet and is entirely impassable at the ford. The enemy, Jackson's Corps, therefore on this side, is cut off from those of the other. You will accordingly march at once upon Sulphur Springs, and thence to Waterloo Bridge, attacking and beating the enemy wherever you find him. You will have an effective force of 25,000 men. To General Banks he sent the same instructions, and McDowell's corps was divided to support this movement. To all these corps commanders he ended by saying, Be quick, for time is everything. On the same day, August 23, 1862, in his dispatch to Halleck, he writes, The river has risen six feet. The enemy's forces, Stonewall Jackson's, on this side, which have crossed at Sulphur Springs, are cut off from those of the south side. I march at once with my whole force on Sulphur Springs and Waterloo Bridge, and hope to destroy these forces before the river runs down. On the next day, he telegraphed to Halleck, no force of the enemy has been able to recross the river, and are enclosed by our forces, and will undoubtedly be captured. When the whole of Pope's army closed in at Waterloo Bridge, it was literally a waterhall. Neither wagon, gun, nor rubble was to be seen, and all this pother, these maneuvers, these masterly concentrations of forces, were false alarms. McDowell, who was in the advance, wrote to Pope under date of August 26th. General Milroy burned the bridge at Waterloo before he left. What is the enemy's purpose? It is not easy to discover. Some have thought he means to march around our right, through Rectortown to Washington. Others think that he intends going down to Shenandoah. Others that it is his object to throw his trains around in the valley to obtain supplies. It is also thought that a large portion of his army have retired to Culpeper Army by the Spiryville Road. General Mansfield wrote to Halleck about this time. Stonewall Jackson has 125,000 men at least. He is fortifying between Louisa Courthouse and Gordonsville. Pope answered McDowell by writing, I believe the whole force of the army has marched for the Shenandoah Valley by the way of Lurie and Front Royal. Now at the very time Pope was closing in to capture Jackson at Sulphur Springs, the ubiquitous rebel was twenty miles in Pope's rear at Manassas Junction, where a vast depot of supplies for Pope's army was concentrated, 
and where the ragged, dust-begrimmed rebels were drinking champagne from tin cups and eating canned fruit from the sutler's stores, preparatory to applying the torch to Pope's reservoir of supplies. On the 26th of August, Pope sent a dispatch to McDowell in which he says, Fitz John Porter, with Sykes's and Morrell's divisions, will be within two and one-half miles of Warrington tomorrow night. I will use all of my efforts to have Sturgis's and Cox's divisions within three miles of you tomorrow night, and have requested General Halleck to push forward Franklin's division at once. I think our fight should be made at Warrington, and if you can postpone it for two days, we will be all right. On the evening of the same day, he telegraphed to Washington, Our communications have been interrupted by the enemy's cavalry at Manassas. On the next day, August 27th, he wrote to Major General Kearney, At the very earliest dawn, move forward to Bristow Station with your whole command. Jackson, A.P. Hill, and Ewell are in front of us. I want you to be here at day dawn, and we shall bag the whole crowd. At the same hour, he wrote to McDowell, March rapidly on to Manassas Junction. Jackson is between Gainesville and Manassas Junction. If you march promptly, we shall bag the whole crowd. On the next day, August 28th, he wired McDowell, You will move on to Gunspring to intercept Jackson. I will push forward to Reno and Heintzelman, unless there is a large force at Centersville, which I do not believe. Jackson has a large train which certainly should be captured. At 10 p.m. on the same day, he notified Heintzelman, McDowell has intercepted the retreat of the enemy. Siegel is immediately on his right, and I see no possibility of his escape. On the next day, August 29th, he telegraphed to Banks, Destroy the public property at Bristow, and fall back upon Centerville at once. On the next day, or rather night of August 30th, his dispatch to Halleck reads, We had a terrific battle today. The enemy, largely reinforced, assaulted our position early today. We held our ground firmly until 6 p.m., when the enemy, massing with very heavy columns on our left, forced back that wing about a half a mile. At dark we held that position. The troops are of good heart and marched off the field without the least hurry or confusion. The enemy is badly crippled, and we shall do well enough. Be easy. Everything will go well. On the next day he wires Halleck, I should like to know whether you feel secure about Washington. Should this army be destroyed, I shall fight it as long as a man will stand up to the work. After Pickett's disastrous charge at Gettysburg, Lee rode among his men, saying, This failure is all my fault. Nobody is to blame except myself. Now see what Pope says. On the day after the battle his dispatch to Halleck reads, one commander of a corps who was ordered to march from Manassas Junction to join me near Grovestown, although he was only five miles distant, failed to get up at all, and worse still, fell back to Manassas without a fight. What makes matters worse, there are officers in the regular army who hold back from either ignorance or fear. Their constant talk indulged in publicity is that the army of the Potomac will not fight. When such example is set by officers of high rank, the influence must be very bad among those in subordinate stations. You have hardly an idea of the demoralization among officers of high rank in the Army of the Potomac, arising in all instances from personal feeling in relation to changes in commander-of-chief and others. These men are mere tools and parasites, but their example is producing very disastrous results. 
I am endeavouring to do all I can, and will most assuredly put them where they shall fight or run away. If there is any greater insult offered the gallant men who bore aloft the standard of their country by their commander-in-chief, it has never been recorded. The part the 17th Virginia took in this battle is briefly told by Colonel Corse, who at the Battle of Manassas was temporarily commanding the brigade. He says, At 4.30 p.m. an aide brought me an order to move forward in support of Jenkins and Hunton. I promptly obeyed and overtook the two brigades advancing. I at once put my command about 250 yards in rear of the advancing brigades, keeping my distance when moving forward, and then the whole line became engaged. At this time, discovering a battle on the left and rear of the Chin House, I ordered a charge of the whole line. The order was gallantly responded to and brilliantly executed, the enemy being driven from their guns. The 17th, led by the ardent Colonel Morton Mary, advanced in perfect line. Just before reaching the guns, Colonel Mary fell severely wounded. The charge on the guns was a success. The enemy's support was routed. Samuel Coleman, of Company E, 17th Virginia, in the hottest of the fight, wrested from the hands of the color-bearer of the 11th Pennsylvania Volunteers his regimental colors and handed them to me. These colors I have already had the honor to forward to you. The loss to the 17th Virginia is five officers wounded, four men killed, and thirty-nine wounded. End of chapter 28